Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome. And we're delighted to present All for One and One for All public seminar series on mental health in academia and society. All for One and One for All talks will shine light on and discuss mental health issues in academia across all levels, from students to faculty, as well as in wider society. Seminars are held online once per month on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. CST or 11 a.m. EST, and free for all to attend. Speakers include academics, organizations, and health professionals whose work focuses on mental health. Live Q&A sessions will be held after each talk or during our conversation. And for a live webinar schedule, please visit Lashua Lab website and follow us on Twitter at Lashua Lab. And feel free to post your questions and thoughts as we go along, and we will share them with our speaker during our conversation. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to this webinar on Beyond Ideas of Illness, Mental, Physical, and Social Determinants of Well-Being. Today, we're happy to have with us one of the most eloquent, popular, and inspirational speakers on the topic of mental health, Mark Hinnick. He's a mental health advocate and a strategist and a workplace mental health education consultant. Informed by his direct experience with stigma, and the mental health care system, Mark dedicated his life from an early age to opening minds, creating change, and breaking down barriers that prevent people with mental health illness from getting the help they need. His writings, speeches, and moving stories always emphasize the importance of refocusing our attention on hope, recovery, and seeking support when we need it. Mark hit viral TEDx talk about the stranger who saved his life has been viewed and shared millions of times. Over the last two decades, he has appeared in hundreds of television, radio, print, and online features about mental health. His bylines include CNN, CNBC, USA Today, and the Chicago Tribunes, and many, many others. People Magazine called Mark one of Canada's most prominent mental health advocates. His activities go way beyond just increasing awareness about mental health. He previously served on the board of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and as the youngest ever president of of a Canadian Mental Health Association division. As host and executive producer for both the so-called Normal and Living Well podcast, He's had hundreds of conversations with experts, celebrities, and public figures about mental health. His TEDx talk, Why We Choose Suicide, is among the most watched in the world with over 6 million views. His story of searching for the man in the light light brown jacket who saved his life from a teenage suicide attempt went viral around the world. We're glad to have Mark with us today. He brings a diverse and unique perspective of someone who has been a patient, a professional, an advocate, and a policy influencer in the the mental health system. 
he lives with his family in Toronto, Canada, but he's with us right now. Welcome, Mark, and we're grateful and appreciative of you for making the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be uh, with you and speaking with such an esteemed audience. You know, over the last uh, two years of this pandemic, I think these kinds of events have been the only thing that's been keeping me in touch with the one thing that I love to do most, which is to tell stories and to talk about mental health. So thank you for having me and thank you for uh, everybody uh, who connected today. Thank you very much. We will actually touch on the topic of the pandemic and mental health and uh, later on the, on the discussion. So I would like to start today's conversation with the way you, you like to start all your talks. And that is by telling the audience about your personal story. So I was wondering if you could just provide the audience with a brief overview about Mark Henek, your childhood and how it has shaped your life today. Yeah, you know, everything that I do and the reason why I uh, start most of my talks, like you say, with stories from my childhood and my and into my adolescence, uh, because that was the hardest among the hardest times of my life when I struggled with severe and persistent mental illness, uh, with major depressive disorder, with an anxiety disorder and with repeated suicide attempts. It seemed like bouncing through the mental health care system here in Canada in a rural uh, in a small town on the east coast uh, of Canada that nobody really knew what to do with me. It, it seemed like nobody could figure out what was wrong with me as though I was a, a broken down car on the side of the road. Uh, nobody could quite fix me. Uh, and as a result of that, you know, I, I was first discovered to be suicidal when I was 12, uh, although I think I'd actually been struggling with it since I was at least 10 years old. But as a result of dealing with that over the course of the next five or six years, when I became an adolescent, I thought I was just completely hopeless, uh, that if all these really smart people, all these doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, parents, priests, all sorts of different people, if none of these people could save me, maybe that it meant that I was unhelpable. And I, I just became completely hopeless and, and helpless. Uh, and that's when I, uh, as one of my, what I thought was going to be one of my uh, final suicide attempts, I had already attempted by that point about a half a dozen times, I climbed up over the railing of a bridge in my hometown. And if it wasn't for a stranger who saw me, even though it was late at night, uh, in the middle of a, a Sunday night in March, he stopped, he talked to me, uh, and he got to know me while I was standing on about an inch and a half or so of concrete above the ground, ready to jump. And it was his connection with me in that incredibly vulnerable moment. And he actually ended up reaching out and, and grabbing me and pulling me back over the railing. I think it was that moment that things finally started to change for me. I didn't realize that until much later, but I then lived the next 20 years of my life trying to be like that stranger in the light brown jacket who reached out and who saved my life, rather than just standing on the sidelines or rather than just pretending that there aren't people on the edge uh, who, who, who get to that point uh, from a long history. So that's what I've been doing ever since. And, and I keep doing it because every time I open up about my own personal vulnerability, uh, that is what impacts people more than anything else. It's more than the education, more than the professional work. It's that I've been there and I might not know your story and I might not have felt or experienced what you personally have experienced, but we do have a common ground, uh, I think. That sense of feeling lost and hopeless and helpless. And, and I think we can, we can meet there and, and I, I often do with people. 
Um, so that's what I've dedicated my life to. I'm one of the fortunate few, I think, who discovered their passion or built their passion from a very young age. And now I get to do this work uh, as my life's work. And I'm so grateful for that. I want to come back to that uh, moment, what you call the moment at the edge. Mm -hmm. Because from, from my readings and from your talks, you know, generally when, when, you know, we're, when we see people who are struggling with mental health, we're always reluctant sometimes to intervene because we're afraid that we may not say the right things and we're afraid you know, that we're not equipped to do the right things. And in, in, in some of your talks, you've mentioned the, the idea that you know, sometimes what we need is not an expert, but just another human being. So yeah. I wonder if you could just take us back to that moment and, and a little bit provide a little bit more details into the conversation you had with this stranger man that he was able to get to you or convince you to reverse course. I mean, was, was, was it his expertise? Was it the way he approached you? You know, what made the connection? Yeah, I love this question because what brought me to the edge that point uh, was this sense of all of the interactions, or at least the most salient of the interactions, and our attention, especially when you're depressed, your attention is driven by salience and relevance. So all the things that are most salient and most relevant to you are the things that feed into the depression. That's why it's a mental illness, after all. It, it's like a vortex that sucks in certain exclusive data. Uh, so what brought me to the bridge by that point was that I had talked to so many doctors, um, most of whom very well-meaning, a few not so helpful, and very rarely some who really broke through for me, not just doctors, other mental health professionals as well. But I felt like they all had a similar kind of way of approaching problems. It was a very reductionist, uh, mechanical, scientific way uh, that, of course, is you're, you're trained uh, to do. But I, I think this is one of the things that distinguishes really great mental health professionals from people who are still uncertain themselves in their own skills. Uh, is that when you're just learning, you fall back on the diagnostic criteria. You use the objectivity as a shield because you're not ready yet to dip one toe into the water. You're afraid that you might lose yourself, I think. Uh, when you get really good at it, I think you're able to, to straddle that um, boundary a little bit better, to enter into somebody else's vulnerability. But where I was, I mean, in a, in a rural area without a whole lot of um, uh, mental health professionals, period, uh, but also without a whole lot of professional development for people uh, in that field, I felt like I had memorized the Beck depression inventory and the Hamilton anxiety rating scales. And I knew what they were going to ask. I knew how they were going to tilt their head when they talked to me, you know, and it all just felt so mechanical. And that didn't help me. That brought me to the bridge in a way uh, uh, that night because I felt mechanical. I didn't know how to manage my own emotions. I didn't feel safe with my own emotions. That's why I think the salience of what that stranger in the light brown jacket did for me popped uh, from the background so much, why it stood out. Because what he did for me wasn't all that miraculous. I'm not going to come and tell you that he, he suddenly um, unlocked the secrets of life for me, or he suddenly gave me the solutions, the therapeutic intervention that helped me. What he did was listen, and he created a space that even though it was uncomfortable, he didn't run away from. He'd ask me questions about my life, you know, if I had any pets, uh, if I had any hobbies or interests. He asked me what I was good at, 
None of the doctors asked me what I was good at or what I was passionate about. They'd ask me about my symptoms, what was hard, what was uh, struggling, what I was bad at, or at least that's how I perceived it. But he asked me about the things that I actually cared about. And even uh, more importantly than that, he actually seemed to care about my answers rather than charting them as I was speaking. You know, he was looking at me. He was in close proximity to me, but also being very mindful not to invade my very delicate personal space at that point, literally speaking. Um, when I wouldn't talk, uh, he, didn't, he didn't push me. He didn't pressure me. He didn't say things like uh, uh, any of those empty platitudes. Tomorrow's another day. If you're super depressed, that's part of the problem, that tomorrow's another day of the same old stuff again. You're stuck in a loop, in a collapsed loop in your mind. So that's what he did for me. He created that warm, open space where he didn't rush in, in this fixer fixation, and try to judge or, or change everything about me. Uh, he, he helped to relieve some of the pressure so that way I could come up for air myself. And that's what I think was so powerful for me. Yeah. I think perhaps for people who are listening, maybe you should mention that you, you, the, you know, the event end with both of you hugging each other, but then the man left, and it took you years to find actually to, to find out who he is. Yeah, that's right. So I actually, um, he he left that night. I was loaded into the back of an ambulance um, because the police and when you're in a small town, I don't know if I have these in Switzerland. Well, of course they do, but the police all have radios and scanner, and then people buy scanners so they can listen to what the police are doing on their on their radios. So that's what people would do in my small town just for a pastime because there's nothing else to do. So they would listen to their little ham radios or whatever uh, of the police chatter. Uh, anyway, all the police had arrived, crowds had arrived. Um, after the stranger grabbed me and pulled me back, I was loaded into the ambulance and brought back to the hospital. Um, and then I went on this journey for the next 15, 20 years of my life, becoming a mental health advocate, not knowing who this guy was. I told the story about him when I was on the TED stage on that famous red dot, and I still at that point had no idea who this person was, or even my secret was, even if he was real, because I had started to dissociate so much in my mind and, and I think create things in my mind uh, that I didn't even know if that had really even happened. So then I decided that I needed to try to find out by this point because I had some good, you know, I was well into my recovery. I had some good um, media skills at that point. I went on national television here in Canada and asked for the public's help to find him. And we did that very same day. And it turned out that he'd been looking for me too, that he had just found out that I was still alive. Uh, so we met up in, in Toronto. We flew him up to Toronto. And I finally got to thank him not just for saving my life, but for giving me my whole life ever since, for being my role model ever since, even though uh, I didn't even know who he was. Uh, his name is Mike. He's been working in uh, um, crisis intervention with young boys ever since. So we both impacted each other, it turns out, on that night. That's impressive. So, you know, in this, in this forum, we've discussed the concept of sort of mental health quite extensively, but this is the first time we talk about suicide. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a topic that is very difficult, heavy, uncomfortable uh, to discuss. How, you know, how do people, you know, what is your approach of sort of engaging people about this topic and how do people react and, and sort of what works when you try to address such a difficult topic? 
You know, for me, it's funny because I forget sometimes. I shouldn't say that I forget that it's a difficult topic, but because I do it every day and because I've, um, I do it from a place of personal experience that I've processed so thoroughly uh, for so long, um, that it, it's really second nature for me to talk about it. But it's also very interesting to watch how people react, like you say, when we bring it up. And I notice a distinct difference from when I started doing this just over 20 years ago, when I very the very first time I did any kind of what I now think of as advocacy, I asked my high school principal if I could talk to my peers about mental health and suicide. Uh, they said no, that if you talk about suicide, it gives people the idea to go out and do it, which is false, by the way. There are helpful and unhelpful ways of talking about suicide, but talking about suicide, asking people if they're suicidal, it will not give them the idea to do it. In fact, it's one of the most powerful protective mechanisms that we have. Um, so when I was denied that opportunity, I went home and wrote a letter to my local newspaper. Uh, I think I likened the... Um, uh, high school administration to communist Russia for stifling my free speech in that very first editorial. I was a bit of a precocious kid. I've changed my style a bit since. Um, not much, but since. Um, and then there were television news cameras at the school the next day asking why we couldn't talk about these things too. And what was interesting about that was that it had the exact opposite other people had the exact opposite reaction than what I was expecting. I was expecting that by finally opening up and telling my own story in my own words, people would, would shun me. They would see me, uh, you know, cast me off to Leper Island and see me as somebody crazy, psycho that you can't talk to. And the exact opposite happened. When I opened up about my story, people started opening up about theirs too. They started sharing that, that they had been suicidal or that they lost their father, their brother, or whoever else to suicide. They started telling me all their deepest, darkest secrets. And that's when I realized that people want to, people need to talk about hard things like suicide. The problem is that not enough people are asking, not enough people are opening the door and creating that, that brave space for people to have these kinds of conversations. So uh, I think we've come a long way, but we're still, we still have a lot of work to do to continue to cultivate that brave space. For somebody who's struggling sort of with mental, you know, health challenges or even suicidal thoughts, you know, one of the most difficult things is, 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 is that feeling no one understands you, right? And, and it's very easy for people to understand when they see a physical, you know, damage, but a mental, you know, is, um, so at some, at, you know, at, at that time, sort of in your, in your childhood, uh, you know, for if, if there was somebody who was at the same, the same, experiencing the same thing today, you know, what would you tell them to, as a, probably the first step to take in the right direction? Mm. Well, first of all, I think we need to validate the individual nature of the experience. Before we get to any of the kind of standardized clinical stuff that, yes, we actually do have a pretty good idea of a lot of the commonalities that happen uh, between these kinds of experiences. But people don't want to hear that when they're going through it, because the only experience they know is their experience. The only brain they have, the only mind they have is theirs. So that's the only way they can see the world. And if there's something happening that's skewing that perspective on the world or, or uh, the terminology that I use in my TED talk, uh, that's causing that perception to collapse in on a certain point, a point of hopelessness and helplessness, then it's very difficult for them to see anything outside of that perception because they become so 
cognitively rigid, so locked in uh, and perseverating on that one thing that they think they need to do. It doesn't matter if you tell them that they don't or that you've been there and you got through it. Well, that's good for you, they might think, um, but that's not me. So first and foremost, we need to honor the individual experience. Um, you can't step into the same river twice <laughs> in that Heraclitan idea, and two different people can't step into the exact same experience uh, twice either. Once we do that, once we level set and get on the same page and realize that um, you're there to, if I were there to help myself, uh, to realize that I might not know exactly what you're going through right in this very moment, but it's okay. I don't need to. I can lean into that uncertainty, into that vulnerability, uh, and still create that safe, brave space together. You don't need any knowledge to be present. You can be present. Anybody who, who uh, hopelessly loves their pet, their dog, or nature, or finds a flow state when they're dancing or playing a musical instrument, that's the connection that you can build. You don't have to know things to build that connection between two people. So I, I think that once you create the fertile ground, uh, then you can allow that that kind of relationship to, to develop. So I think that's what I would um, tell myself is that we can talk about these things together and we don't necessarily have to have all of the same language, but we can still love and support each other anyway. So for you personally, what are some of the sort of most important either things, experiences or action that helped you regain control, right? You, you went from this very vulnerable state to, I'm sure it's, it was a process, but along this process, so sort of what, what were the most important thing that empowered you, enabled you to reclaim your life again? So for me, if I take a lifespan perspective on this, I think of this almost as uh, a process, a developmental process, uh, recovery is, of building up and then almost tearing down or letting go. Um, so on the building up stage, um, I didn't, especially very early on, uh, have really I was never in, uh, taught very intentional coping mechanisms, not because we didn't do that. It's just it, it wasn't normal. It wasn't common uh, to talk about our emotions, to talk about working things through. Uh, one of the most powerful things that I think parents can do for their kids is coach them through their difficult emotions. Don't say you're not saying uh, don't cry or as I was told repeatedly, boys don't cry, you know, suck it up. I'll give you a reason to cry. Now, these kinds of things, not the most helpful way to parent or coach your kids through their difficult emotions. So helping kids to uh, hold their difficult emotions and learn how to actually cope with them. Um, I didn't learn that early on, and I think that was a, a part of the foundation of my struggles, but I started to learn that later. Um, and that, I really felt, gave me some control or some agency over my emotions, really learning that if I feel this, I can do this, and then repeating that, you know, like you're learning any habit or like you're exercising uh, any faculty, practicing that ability of cue uh, or trigger, and then what you actually do about it or the habit that, that you then um, put into place. So that helped me through some very basic cognitive behavioral therapy, but mostly through self-study and through self-help uh, kind of avenues, because that's all that was available to me. Uh, later on then, uh, as I started to own my own story, I think, and become less alienated with myself, really inhabiting my own body, it was only then that I was able to recognize the trauma uh, that I had experienced as a young person, um, physically, sexually, emo certainly emotionally. Uh, I didn't, I didn't start to really grapple with that until uh, 
until many years later, uh, just before I started doing the book, actually. And, and there was still some residual stuff when I was writing the book that came up and surprised me. So I really had to work that through in a, in a loving and accepting way with myself, that your trauma isn't your fault, but your recovery is your responsibility. I mean, what else are you going to do? Uh, you have to be able to accept before you can change. Um, so that for me, that idea of acceptance and change was really when my recovery turned from mechanical into something deeper, into a deep learning uh, of recovery. Then I said that the other side of that almost pyramid or hill of recovery is then eventually you get to a certain point where you've accumulated lots of emotional literacy, lots of coping skills, you've done the work inside that you need to do. Um, this is one of the reasons I'd love to visit Switzerland, actually, to go to Zurich, uh, visit the Jung Institute there and then look at really some of the, the uh, depth uh, work that you need to do on the on the back end. But then on the other end, eventually you get to a point where you have to let it all go. And you have to just go on with your life. You have to start anew. You have to approach every day with a beginner's mind that you're not who you're not now who you were anymore. You're somebody new. You're somebody different, uh, and that's okay. I think that's really what frees you then to be uh, your new self, your complete self, your most present self. That comes, I think, much later. But that's the really beautiful place that I've been able to find myself in since I've been able to settle down and have a family and do all that so-called normal stuff <laughs> that I never thought would have been accessible to me when I was a 15-year-old kid struggling. It's also freeing yourself from being hostage to living to living the expectations to the expectations of others, you know? Yeah. Well, that's it too. And I never realized when I first started writing the book, I thought that I had dealt with all my stuff. Um, that that I didn't realize how much of it was just beneath the surface, right under my skin, all the time. Uh, and once I finally was able to dig all that out, take it all out of that black box, deal with it, and then put it all back in again, I find now I don't, I can't even remember some things anymore. Like I can try, and I was like, did that happen? When did that happen? But when I was writing the book and and all of the years before that, it was always so present for me. I just couldn't, my mind just wouldn't let it go because it was demanding. It was beating me over the head to be dealt with. You can't keep running. Uh, so you have to go through hell, unfortunately, Dante knew, uh, before you can get to paradise. So let's talk about the book, Galena. So your book is The So-Called Normal. So can you tell us a bit more of uh, details of why did you decide to write it? And it's a really interesting point that you made, that you had to go through all of these processes. So how did that work? So I had done uh, my TED Talk back in 2013, and it was a huge, it was way bigger, I think, than any of us thought it was going to be, because it really struck a chord. It was just as we were starting to really speak openly about suicide in public venues. So it really struck a chord. Um, I'd been doing speaking and writing for many years anyway, and then eventually I just got to a point where I think the idea had been percolating for a long time, but I needed to give my own story a certain structure, because I think all of our stories, all of our experiences just kind of sit like a lump in our memory, in our head. And at least in my case, we don't always draw a narrative thread through it, you know, kind of give it a beginning, a middle and a, and a relative end up until now. And I think as a result, at least for me, it feels very disorganized. It can feel difficult to know where you're going if you don't have a coherent kind of, if you haven't sorted out where you've been. So that was part of the motivation for me for the book. Uh, and fortunately, because of the relationships I developed, um, we were able to, uh, HarperCollins came on board uh, almost right away, well, actually right away. Uh, they were very uh, excited uh, to, to publish the book right out of the gate. 
So then I had a wonderful editor uh, with whom I worked. Uh, the very first draft that I wrote, I took all of my med I went away to a Trappist monastery in the woods. I can be rather intense. I need to be singularly focused. Uh, so I went away to this Trappist monastery in the woods where I locked myself away in a room for weeks and weeks, more than a month actually, and wrote that first draft with all my medical records, digging into my history on an almost day-by-day -day basis. And then over the next actually two years or so, uh, going back over it again and again and editing. I think we went through like 14 edits just to make sure that we had the story the way that it, that we all needed it to be, I think, that it was true, but also that it was a good story. And that was important for me, too. I didn't want it to be a dictionary of my life. I needed it to be um, a, a coherent, engaging read. Um, so that's what we worked on. And, and by the end of it, um, I was very pleased. I was impressed with myself for having accomplished it, first of all, because I didn't think I could at many points along the way. Um, but I was also very pleased that it was so warmly received uh, by readers. Uh, that it was uh, in, always intended to be not a story about a kid who struggled and tried to kill himself. My story isn't about the, the fact that I tried to kill myself a bunch of times. My story is about the fact that I didn't and that I went on and lived the life of a guy who could write a book. That's never something that I thought I'd be able to do, even though some people do a lot, a lot of them. So really for me, that's what the story is about. It's, it's a difficult story, but it's a story of hope and resilience and how stuff happens to people, but you grit it out, you figure it out, uh, and you move on. I really love your approach to writing. I think I'm gonna write all my paper, papers now in the woods, just sequestering <laughs> looking at the results of your paper. It's very healing, it is. It's very effective, I find. So I was wondering, so how easy or difficult it was for you to write? Were there moments that you were thinking like, I cannot do this part, or I should maybe pause a little bit? Yeah, oh, there were so many of those points. And first of all, I had no idea. So even just going into it, I had no idea how to write a book, just mechanically. I didn't know how to do it. Um, so I learned along the way uh, as I was going, uh, learned how to outline it a little bit. And the, we did a, a good outline of the points that I wanted to hit. Um, but then really it came back to just digging into my entire history in a, in a very linear way or as, as linear a way as possible. So then as I was doing that, um, memory is funny. Memory is, it's, it's sticky. It's almost like that children's toy, the barrel of monkeys, where you pull out one monkey and it's linked to another one. And then a whole chain of them come out after that because they're all related to each other. Um, and I, that's what surprised me the most was that I would just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into my history. Um, then what started to happen was that I started to see the connections or the linkages, uh, between the different points along the way in my story. So I would go to hospital, uh, I'd get out, there wouldn't be very much follow-up care. Um, I'd do okay for a little while, but then I would decompensate again. I'd start doing poorly again. I'd end up back in hospital. I'd do okay for a while, and then I'd go back in. So this happened over and over. And I couldn't help but think, as I, I literally spread out all these medical records uh, on the floor and tables in front of me, I couldn't help but think, how could nobody else see this? And I don't have access here, other than my mind, I guess, and my memories, but in terms of what's on paper, I don't have access to anything that they didn't have. So why didn't anybody else actually step back and take a broader perspective of the trajectory of my illness? Uh, and that was a really powerful moment for me because it, it showed me what I think we need uh, in terms of, of mental health care, that we, we so often get lost 
uh, in the in the day to day kind of reactive interventions that we forget about the whole person. There were also moments, particularly when I was dealing with my trauma, especially sexual trauma, uh, that I just didn't want to write it. And I knew I didn't want to write it, or, or at least at first, I didn't know that I didn't want to write it. All I knew was that suddenly, every time I try to write this chapter, I get really itchy, or my legs get restless, or I need to go to the bathroom a lot, or I think I might go for a walk, or maybe get a snack. That's how it started at first. And then, because I was so potentiated at that point, looking for patterns, I started to realize, oh, isn't that inter interesting? Every time I come up on a point that I don't want to write, I suddenly find all kinds of other things that I need to suddenly do at a Trappist monastery in the woods. What else is there to do? So, <laughs> so once I, I leaned into that, I realized, okay, we're here to do this. It's going to be hard, but you can do hard things. You've been through worse. Uh, and it needs to be done. So it, that was the approach that I took, was to first of all notice those moments when I didn't want to do certain things, um, to make an extra concerted effort to do them anyway, uh, and then to make sure that I took care of myself after as well to recover. Such an important point you raise about approaching a person, not just like a patient, like having a disease, but looking more holistically and looking at a bigger picture. So now thinking more about the terminology. So if we focus on this word normal, what does that mean to you? What, what is it? I think I have less of an idea of what normal is now than I did before I started writing the book. Uh, this is what I've learned about normal. Um, I, I, I say so-called normal because we all have our own version of normal. Our world, our perception, everything in our memory, everything that we know, everything we've ever experienced, that's our version of normal. And many of us, are absolutely convinced that it's the only one, that our personal reality that we contain in the three pounds of tissue in our head is the same thing that everybody shares. And of course, as we know that it's not, uh, that while yes, we have uh, uh, shared, uh, largely shared genetic heritage and largely similar anatomical structures, uh, that the actual fingerprint of our circuitry and how we're connected together is highly individual. Um, I think that when we're able to actually reach outside of our personal experience, then we can actually, uh, even though it makes us uncomfortable, there's nothing more un uncomfortable than uncertainty. Um, only then can we start to realize and expand a broader definition of what normal actually means, that it's so highly subjective, it's so highly influenced by other people's normals, that our normal is co-created uh, with what other people find normal. And that really hit home for me when I had written the first draft of the book. I was talking to my sister, just caught, my older sister, checking on some things and, and checking dates and, and different events. And she just said to me in the most unexpected way, I thought at one point, Mark, why do you keep talking about trauma? What we went through wasn't trauma. That was normal. That's what everybody went through. And I thought, wow. Because all the people that I've talked to since, my, my clients, my professors and through my, throughout my education and professional work, a lot of other people have showed me that no, actually, uh, mental illness, depression, suicide, that level of struggle and trauma and abuse isn't a rite of passage. That's not what's supposed to happen necessarily, uh, that that in fact uh, has a, an incredibly detrimental, those kinds of adverse experiences have an incredibly detrimental impact on kids. But she didn't realize that at the time because that was still uh, normal for everybody. 
so I guess that's a long answer, as all my answers are, to your question of what is normal, uh, is that it entirely depends, and it turns out it's always changing, and you can change your own normal, that's the best part. But how easy it is to convey your own normal to someone else. Oh, now, you're, now we're talking about not just bridging the gap from brain to mind, but bridging my mind to other minds. <laughs> and if we can figure out a way to do that, the, the way that I've figured out how to do it uh, has been through, through communication and, and uh, language like this, mental health advocacy. In fact, that's the only way we really know is that the evolutionary purpose of language is to take the stuff in my brain and to put it in your brain. Uh, and I think when we, this is what's so exciting for me about the work of people like um, Susan David or Lisa Feldman Barrett or, or a number of others, if we can increase our level of emotional granularity, our emotional language, our emotional literacy, uh, if we can give more color and more gradation to how we communicate our experience, I think then we come closer to, or at least shrinking, we'll never fully eliminate in that, in that Kantian sense of, of, of the separation between our two minds. We can never eliminate that. But I think we can develop a shared, a culturally shared language uh, with enough specificity, enough granularity that we can get pretty close to what each other means. Uh, and I think that's how we really uh, build connection as well is to improve that emotional literacy. One of the topics that we discuss in the context of these webinars is always mental health in academia. So be, I know you, you in, in your professional job now as a consultant and advocates and, uh, and someone who is uh, trying to influence policy at different levels, you're probably familiar with this. But before I, I go into this, I'm just curious about your own experience in academia, you know, coming after this traumatic experience as a, a child and then going to university. So what were your experiences in, in the university setting when it came to dealing with mental health. Yeah, so, I mean, even before university, I never thought I'd get into, I never thought I'd go, uh, I never thought I'd even bother going, but I never thought I'd get in anyway, because as I was struggling with my mental health throughout uh, late elementary school, middle school, uh, and into early high school, uh, you know, when your attention is sucked into the vortex of depression or men any mental illness for that matter, it's really hard to focus on your math or social studies or anything else. Um, so my grades were, were terrible. It was actually one of the first indicators in middle school anyway. One of the first indicators I noticed much later that I was starting to slide was that my grades was almost a one-to-one -one correlation. Uh, my grades suffered as well. That fortunately started to recover late, uh, later on into high school. I applied to one program, partly because um, the summer before I left for, for undergrad, uh, I went away to a French language exchange. I lived with a French family in, in Quebec, um, and I finally got to see the world outside of my small hometown. That, to, to pierce that bubble of experience, I think I now later, um, uh, credit that with catalyzing my desire to get out and do something else with my life because nobody in my small town or very few people actually left and went on to do anything. Um, I applied to one program. I wanted to study criminology. I think partly like many people who study criminology or policing or forensics, um, that comes from a very personal place, I think, uh, of wanting to right the wrongs uh, that have been done to them. So that was part of the reason. 
I ended up going away to, to uh, uh, getting accepted to the program and going away and studying. I took one course in criminology and then I decided I didn't want to do it anymore, that I wanted to study psychology and philosophy instead. Um, so that's what I, I went through. And, and in undergrad anyway, um, I never really fit into any one box. Uh, and that caused me a lot at the time, a lot of um, anguish because I felt like I should. I should fit into big P psychology, professional psychology, or I should fit into big P philosophy. Um, and I just didn't. I was interested in intensely in the connection between them uh, and in the in big questions in scientific contexts. And likewise, scientific method in philosophical uh, discussions. Um, but I really wasn't getting that. So instead, I, I ended up doing my honors in interdis interdisciplinary studies, drawing from both fields uh, to try to get a better understanding of, uh, in what I did, uh, you, uh, doing a Jungian interpretation of Dante's Divine Comedy. So I, I thought I was for a long time equally unemployable in two separate fields. <laughs> but anyway, um, I went off to graduate school to study developmental psychology and from a human development kind of perspective, the, you know, the, the, how the child's brain and mind develop uh, as, a, as, a, as a unique, uh, though intricately connected part of, life, of the lifespan. Uh, and then that's what brought me back to, to Toronto, where I settled down and started working as a mental health clinician uh, and doing additional training along the way because I wanted to be the type of person that I needed uh, when I was 16, 17, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, so now I'm, I find myself in a place uh, uh, many years later, a few, year, few years later anyway, uh, where I'm starting to revisit my, my studies again. And this is where I've started to layer in more of the neuroscientific training and uh, cognitive psychology training. But in terms of, you talked earlier about the importance of having the safe space. And, you know, while going through university, did you feel that that space existed in, in, in the academic settings? And do you feel that this has changed over the years? It's funny you ask that. I don't think I've ever, nobody usually asks this, but, um, or, or, or makes me think of this. Um, but very early on in my undergraduate experience, it ended up being a pivotal experience for me. Um, there was a labor dispute uh, between faculty and, and the university administration. And why that was so pivotal for me was because I had gotten involved with the Students Association, with the Student Union. I was the vice president of student services at the time. I credit a friend with that because I think that's what kept me at university, really, you know, going there and being largely alone, not knowing many people, still being fairly fresh off of my mental health struggles, remember. Um, it was getting involved with the community in that way, feeling like I had a sense of connection and purpose. That's what really kept me there. Then this labor dispute hit, and I found myself in a place where I needed, my job was to advocate for students. But faculty, of course, were advocating for um, primarily wage-related uh, disputes. Um, and there was a, um, an assumption that the students' union would support the faculty union uh, out of solidarity. The problem with that, however, I felt then, and I still actually strongly feel now, was that their requests were being funded by our tuition. So it, in fact, was not a, uh, and especially at a small university where we didn't have big endowments, there was no research funding, there was none of that stuff. It was, it was a teaching university that was, that was um, funded by tuition. Um, so uh, the students' union's position at the time was to advocate for their stakeholders uh, and to oppose uh, uh, tuition increases, uh, which would, would be required to fund uh, additional faculty uh, positions. 
that ended up alienating me, as you might imagine, <laughs> from quite, quite a few people uh, at the university. Uh, and it was uh, very stressful, but I also think it helped to introduce me to um, more ways of studying out of necessity than I otherwise would have discovered. It, it really was what pushed me into the interdisciplinary uh, study rather than just narrowly only focusing in one uh, in one domain. So, you know, doing that, uh, of course, paving your own way or forging your own way, whether you're at university and part of a very prescribed um, narrow program with very, you know, kind of strict boundaries of what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. I think you have to have that kind of creativity and that kind of big mindedness to think outside the box. You know, it actually used to be the tagline of that, that university for me was to uh, think for yourself. And this is why I love liberal arts education, even to today, because thinking for yourself is going to be hard. Not everybody wants you to think for yourself, uh, but you need to do it anyway. Do it respectfully, uh, do it in an engaged, uh, productive, helpful way, but you need to think uh, for yourself. And that's what I credit the, uh, the, the stress of, of university. That's what I credit the uh, not knowing necessarily what I was always going to be doing and needing to pivot uh, uh, every now and then and needing to manage up and manage other people's expectations, but still having that long view uh, that I was going to come out of this with some sort of experience, uh, so I might as well have some say in what that experience is. Yeah, you talk about this uh, many times and that, you know, along this difficult journey, there are some gifts, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about some of these that, you know, some of the greatest gifts that you've gotten amidst these very difficult times yeah you know i i this is always um this is sometimes difficult when talking to people who are still very actively understandably very actively start struggling with their mental health with their depression because all you want it is all you want is for it to go away um but now when i look back i'm actually grateful i'm, I'm grateful for most everything in my life actually uh including the difficult things because i think it's you've probably heard the term thrown around a lot lately of toxic positivity and i think it's it's an example of that toxic positivity when we only focus on the good things in our life because then what happens is that we spend all of our time rejecting and cutting off all the stuff that we wish wasn't in our life well guess what it happened it is it was hard what now that's always the question I come back to. So I'm so grateful for the worst moments in my life um, because from each of them, I chose to learn something. And that wasn't always easy to do. And you have to go through a point when you're in the woods and in the dark and you just don't know what the point of this. There's not some, I don't believe personally, that there's some uh, prescribed purpose for all of your struggles out there that's given to you. Uh, I think that that's something that we narrate and we, we, we cobble together ourselves. Um, so that's why I think I'm so grateful for everything that I've been through, every trauma, uh, every grief, uh, every, every difficulty that I've experienced, because it made me who I am today. And the great thing about that is that I like who I am today. So I wouldn't be who I am uh, if not for who I was. So let's let's step out a little bit maybe from sort of discussing this on the personal context to discussing sort of how do we deal with these issues as a society, right? So generally when we deal with mental health or with somebody who's struggling, it's usually very late. You know, it's when the crisis is already hit. 
Yeah. And there is quite a lot of talk about sort of early interventions, but it's much easier said than done. So I'm curious about your insights of how can we, you know, intervene and help people early? Well, I think it's important to remember that that when we think of intervention, um, at least here in the West, and I think this is true around the world in many places too, we usually think about healthcare. Uh, but remember, healthcare is only about 10% of what it actually takes uh, to be well, even if you do have a mental health problem or illness. Often we're not giving serious enough consideration to the social determinants of mental health and to all of the preclinical stuff that happens. People don't just die by suicide out of nowhere. Sometimes people think that they do, Some, especially family members, people very close and gr actively grieving the person who died, um, will say that we didn't see this coming. My own mother said that about me. And when my mother said that to me, I didn't see this coming, I couldn't help but think, how could you not? Because for me, it was so omnipresent, it was so obvious. And we know that people who are suicidal do typically exhibit changes in behavior or signs uh, of some sort or another. So I think why we fail to, to intervene effectively upstream is because we're still trying to do it from a medical healthcare model predominantly. Instead, if we were to focus, like some programs are starting to do, in fact, on uh, the education systems, uh, getting better, uh, high quality uh, mental health care in schools, preclinical kind of psychoeducation and uh, emotional literacy throughout school, I would hazard a guess that if you were to run every eighth grader uh, through a year-long dialectical behavior therapy program, a formalized program, not some mental health light kind of program, but really getting into the skills. How do you manage uh, emotional regulation? How do you deal with your distress? Uh, how do you love yourself? If we actually um, didactically taught and practically taught those skills, I'd hazard a guess that you'd see a, a rapid decline uh, in later mental health problems and illnesses. Because we know that more than 70% of adults uh, who have a mental health problem or illness uh, identify the beginning of their struggles in childhood and adolescence. So we know that that's ground zero. These many mental health problems and illnesses are in fact developmental disorders by their nature uh, because they start very small, seemingly innocuous, uh, and then they build and scaffold on each other from very, uh, from often a very young age. So I think we need to intervene. If we wanna do um, prevention better, then we need to prevent before we're preventing illness. We need to get into even prenatal care and parent education uh, and changing our social conditions. We know that you can functionally anyway, acquire mental illness from your environment. We, you, you're, you're, you are a product of your environment, uh, that it's not just all in your head. Uh, it didn't just come from, spring from your brain as though it came from nowhere, although that could happen too, sure. But I think the vast majority of cases that we're dealing with uh, are people who are, are struggling and suffering in a psychosocial sense. Uh, and, and in order to intervene uh, early, we need to meet people where they are. Are you aware of any countries or organizations or programs that are already taking that approach of early intervention, you know, starting very early in life and building not only the skill set, you know, but also resilience, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's one program, they're based here in Canada, actually, but they actually have um, uh, sites all around the world. It's called Roots of Empathy. 
And it's a program where they bring young babies uh, into elementary school classrooms. Uh, and actually, they have programs where they do it in high schools, and they even have programs where they do it in, in kindergartens and preschools as well. But they bring these young babies in, they sit them, uh, all, the, all the students in a circle uh, with the baby in the center with their parent. Uh, and whatever that baby is doing that day, whether they're happy and cooing and laughing, or they're crying and hungry or, or uh, need to be changed or whatever else, um, the group is led in a facilitated conversation about what that baby might be feeling. Why that's so effective, and it seems to have um, uh, positive impacts on reducing later mental health problems in the participants, uh, it reduces bullying in the participants, it's called Roots of Empathy because it builds empathy, because it's safer sometimes to watch somebody else feel things and then figure out what they're doing than it is to see your own feelings. You can't see your own face, and likewise, sometimes you can't see your own uh, feelings unless you look into a mirror, right? So when the kids are describing this other little baby baby's feelings and then trying to make connections with all the stuff that it might be feeling, they're actually learning about their own feelings as well. So that's one example of a really promising practice that somebody would never think of a program like that, sitting kids in a circle to talk about a baby's feelings, maybe someday in 15 years, that's going to prevent one of those kids suicide because they learned how to recognize their emotions before they become forest. They learned how to recognize it as a match before it becomes a forest fire. Uh, and I think that's a, a, a really key and important uh, consideration. So you, you talk about, you know, again, I go back to this, uh, you know, one of the, the idea of creating a safe, a safe space, the idea of the first step to dealing with mental health challenges is to talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when people, seek your advice and consultation for, you know, whether it's professional or, uh, you know, you know, educational institutions or private sector. So, you know, what's the best way to, to invite these sort of meaningful and helpful conversation about these issues, you know? So. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is, is, um, to draw out a bit of the distinction between safe spaces, which is very commonly um, uh, used and a good thing, safe spaces and the terminology that I now use is actually brave spaces. And why I've, uh, I used to uh, say safe space all the time, but I, it was only a couple of years ago that I made that transition with clients and, and in my public speaking for this reason not every space is going to be safe. And you can do your best if you're an event organizer, if you're a, a, a professor or an employer, um, you're gonna try your best. It's often your legal obligation, of course, to create uh, both a physically and psychologically healthy and safe environment. That's the basic minimum. But there also has to be a recognition that people are bringing all their own stuff to the table and that you'll never be able to um, fully uh, create safety for especially people from marginalized backgrounds or people with trauma histories or people with all sorts of other issues. So I started saying brave space because it's a recognition, a validation that this stuff is hard, that sometimes you are going to encounter difficult things that make you uncomfortable, that make you upset. We can't shield everybody from that stuff, nor should we. But that's okay. We can do hard things together. And I think that's what builds a sense of community. I mean, really, that's what Mike, the stranger in the light brown jacket, did for me. 
he didn't come in and 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 suddenly fix my problems or give me a bunch of suggestions or uh, lock into that fixer fixation where he's trying to just fix all my issues for me as though you could even do that as though you could inject recovery into somebody else's brain hasn't worked yet and believe me systems have tried <laughs> so so instead though um creating that that space that brave space where everybody's scared that's the thing it's not like you have an expert and a and a and a sufferer it's not a messiah kind of thing it's that no we're all really scared right now we're all this is hard for all of us and that's okay I think that's really helping companies to really lean into that or universities, uh, 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 any of the general public being able to hold difficult spaces together. That's, I think, what builds personal resilience, but it also builds team resilience as well. Consistently, research has shown that when teams go through hard things together, whether it's a shared project or, or, or something else, uh, that they come out better and more tightly uh, entwined on the other side because they feel like they have each other's backs. They feel like they have teammates, like they're in it together. So really, that's the kind of culture that we need to build on campuses, uh, in workplaces, and even within our own families. Do you feel from, you know, you interact with very different types of clients? in terms of people who value sort of mental health and try to take action to, to deal with it or create an environment that deals with it, do you feel that those people who can are better at calculating the economic cost of mental health take it more seriously than others? For example, you know, it's very easy to calculate how for a banking system, you know, mental versus in academia where it, you know, nobody wants to do that math, you know? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. There's a very clear return on investment for, for improving psychological health and safety pretty much across the board in most contexts. Universities, uh, because universities are often uh, the biggest employers in their towns uh, very frequently. So they're major employers. The psychological health and safety, not only of faculty, but of administrative staff, of support staff, and of the students themselves, uh, is a vitally, critically important factor in the success of the university itself. So there's, there's uh, you know, this has been researched a lot. There's unquestioningly a positive return on investment. Whether that's the actual motivation for change, I'm actually not so sure. Because when uh, executive leadership, when, when top brass are um, interviewed about this type of thing, it almost always comes back to the companies that do, companies and campuses that do the best job of it, it almost always comes back to senior administration who have a personal connection, who think that it's not, not just because it's good business, it is, but because it's the right thing to do. It comes from a place of a moral center. Uh, and, and I think that is the message that we need to be um, tapping into with more people in positions of power, is that this is the right thing to do to support each other. That yes, it's gonna be good for your bottom line. It's, it's gonna pay for itself, that, that part is a given. But also we need to do this because it's humane that uh, the mental health crisis as thomas insel the former uh, head of the national institute of mental health in the states uh, he has said that the mental health crisis is a human rights crisis so we need to address the human rights aspect uh, of people who, for whom the system is failing them uh, that they deserve uh, to have the supports required to live their best uh, and most productive lives. So the places where they spend more waking hours than anywhere else, whether it's on campus or at a workplace, uh, that's ground zero for trying to improve their mental health. So you share such an inspir inspirational journey up until now. So I was wondering what's next for you? 
I'm working on a new book. Um, I didn't think I would do it so soon, but I've been fascinated by the the um, not only the intricate connection uh, between the brain, the mind, and the, and our society that we live in, but also how each of these domains, uh, each of which has many, many uh, of their own subdivisions or subdisciplines, um, how they actually share a lot of the same language, but oftentimes they don't know it. Uh, and I'm so consistently struck by the analogies that can be drawn, for example, from neuroscience and brought into psychology and how the mind works and brought into uh, sociology and how we, we interact as groups. So that's what I've been working on uh, for a new book. Um, but I'm also uh, a regular media commentator and podcaster, so we've been doing some really exciting things uh, for the show, We have for my Living Well podcast, that is. Um, May is Mental Health Month in the United States. The first week is Mental Health Week in Canada. The second week is Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK. I'm not sure if, if you have anything equivalent in uh, Switzerland or, or for other, the other participants here today, but May is a great time to have important conversations about mental health. All year is, but May especially. So we've been focused on uh, getting back to basics, I think. We need to really uh, help people to understand what mental health really is according to, to the most advanced research, uh, that it's not just a matter, a, a very simple matter of a broken brain, uh, that, that it's actually a lot more hopeful uh, than that, that, that the scientific, the real scientific picture is a lot more hopeful than I think the current state of mental health awareness would have us to believe. So that's the other piece, piece in terms of my communications that I'm uh, hoping to elaborate for people. And what would be your final messages to individuals who are listening here and on the podcast as well as uh, on our uh, video recording as well, who might be struggling with the mental health uh, issues and challenges? I like to remind people what was what I wish I knew uh, when I was struggling the most which was to wait, that this will pass, that transition is the nature of life. Impermanence is the nature of life. All the good things that you experience are gonna pass too. So if your depression is telling you that, yeah, that's probably true. But that also means, and I think is proof for, the fact that the difficult emotions pass too. So when they become the most intense, sometimes you have to ride them out. Sometimes it's gonna be awful and that's okay you're going to be okay on the other side, side, that your mind can't kill you, even if it wants to, even if it feels like it's going to, uh, when you're the most stressed out that you've ever been, you're going to be okay. So remind yourself of that, however often it takes. And sometimes it comes down to a matter of faith, whether or not you actually believe in a, in a, uh, anything supernatural or, or religious. I think this is entirely apart from that because faith for me is, um, waiting, believing, and expecting something that you have no evidence for. And if even if you feel like you have no evidence for the fact that you're going to be okay, trust and have faith in the fact that you will. Life has a funny way of working itself out in the most unexpected ways. I'm living proof of that. Well, I, I just can't thank you enough for so many things. One is, I think, the most important thing for, for your courage and bravery to 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 open up to transform your vulnerability into power to share your experience and as you may already know and i think it's it's impacting and transforming people's life you know hearing those words of empowerment of hope and compassion and empathy 
really makes a difference for people who are struggling and uh, you are making a difference. So we really appreciate you coming today. And I just, I think they, there may be some questions we'll take on now, but um, for our colleagues from the EPFL, Lausanne and Switzerland, I'm happy to confirm that, you know, Michael agreed to come and visit us in Switzerland and he will soon be on our campus. So you will get to meet him in person. We'll arrange the dates and share with everybody soon. So Galena, can you see if there are any questions before we close? Um, so we are happy to finish uh, our session today. So Mark Hennig, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been truly insightful discussion. And as you know, said, we will be really happy to welcome you in a French speaking part of Switzerland. And hopefully we're going to make you a fan of fondue and chocolate. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you.